about some crazy things that were kind of humorous in the fact that someone this year ate their 30,000th Big Mac. We talked about some crazy things on the other extreme where we talked about things that happen in our world that just are disheartening. Things like yesterday in Knoxville when a cop gets hit in the back of the head with a claw hammer. We talk about these crazy moments in our, our world. We, we talk about these crazy things that happen. And we left wondering, what is our response? What do we do with these moments? And so this series has really been about how it is that I'm going to position myself to, to put myself in the best place, in the best frame of mind, in the best spiritual place to really respond to the craziness that is our world, the craziness that exists in our marriages, the craziness that exists within my house or within my, my workspace or within my neighborhood. And so today we're going to finish that out with what is going to be just a powerful reminder, but very simple. 2018 also brought one of the saddest, most heartbreaking moments in my life to date. And not to make light of, of other catastrophic things that have happened over the course of the year, or you know, major things and turning of events and moments, but this one was really tough for me. It was when Toys R Us closed down. When Toys R Us bankrupted, and forever closed their stores. It was such a sad moment. This next picture is one of the saddest images to ever hit the internet. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Jeffrey packed up, ready to go. Anybody else feel this way? You can be honest. Come on now. Todd, okay, me and Todd, we're sad. My sister and I, my family was up, and it just so happened to be the same week that Toys R Us was going to be closing their doors forever. And so my mom and dad and my sister and her little boys who really don't experience Toys R Us, we all kind of went for that final day. And it was just in shambles. There was stuff everywhere, you know, like it just looked like a tornado had gone through. And empty shelving, that, like you saw there with Jeffrey, was just everywhere. And I really did have to fight tears because this was such a, a big part of my childhood. It was such a big part of my experiencing Nashville. We lived just south of Nashville growing up as like an elementary school kid. And uh, it was a big, big deal when we got to travel from Summertown, Lawrenceburg, Columbia, for those of that don't know anything about Tennessee, there's this little, little town called Summertown. And we would venture up every now and then on a Saturday, and we would go to Hickory Hollow, which, again, a lot of you don't even know what Hickory Hollow is. Uh, but Hickory Hollow used to be the mall in town. But outside of the mall, there was the Toys R Us. And I remember you had to, when you got off the interstate, you saw Toys R Us, and I think this was all planned by whoever it was that bought that piece of land. But before you got to the mall, before you got to anything else, you saw Toys R Us. It was the first thing you saw when you got off the interstate. And so I remember being, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old, getting off that interstate, and immediately, Mom, Dad, we got to go to Toys R Us. And Dad's like, no, you know, we, we, got, we got to keep on track today. We got a lot to do. We're trying to get this done. I was like, come on, can we just go in and look? Dad's like, we never just go in and look. It turns into a four-hour event. You leave in tears. You're going to get spanked because you're not going to act right. And then you're going to, it's never, Jason, it's never a good thing for us to go in Toys R Us. And we would beg and beg and beg. And finally, they would say, okay, let's see how the day goes. And our day would always end with Toys R Us. And so my sister and I are standing in the one in Rivergate, and we're looking around at something that seems so meaningless in the grand scheme of things. But in the moment, it's just something that kind of tugs at our heartstrings. And so we reminisce about those car rides home. We reminisce about the spankings. And my dad, who is, you know, this short, the thought of him 
correcting us and saying no. And I had a moment where I looked at my sister and I said, you know, the saddest thing about today is that your kids will never be a Toys R Us kid tomorrow. That today will be the end of your kids experiencing something that we experienced our entire life. And the reality of life is this, and sometimes we ignore this, that seemingly the momentary effects of today affect more than just today. We live in a world where we kind of lock in and we ignore the reality, the fact that what I do today matters tomorrow. And, and, and these seemingly momentary moments where you're going, it's just, it's just the moment, right? I mean, it's just the here and now. It doesn't really affect that we forget that some things ripple past the momentary moment and they really do affect tomorrow. And, and it's these moments where the bankruptcy of Toys R Us will forever affect kids, and I get it, Amazon and all these great things have come to replace some of those things, but there, there's a moment where it will affect kids all their life. It's the same with personal bankruptcy, right? I've known people who have a momentary uh, 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 bankruptcy here, but guess what? Three years, five years, seven years down the road, they're still feeling the effects of that. They're still not able to finance a house or not at a good rate. They're still not able to get a personal loan. It's a momentary event, but it affects future events. It affects things. And there will be future times where even if after the moment has come and gone, where there's a reminder of that, that moment where something just hit rock bottom, where all of a sudden I'm still feeling empty and you're going, hold up, but this was so far back here on my calendar. Why am I still feeling these things? And that's what bankruptcy does. It depletes. It it has a way of completely lacking in not just quality of the moment, but quality of future moments. And so as Paul is winding down this letter that he wrote to this church in Corinth, the Corinthians, he encourages them. As he's finishing up kind of his final notes, he says, I want to encourage you to take into account what counts, what matters. And so we've talked about a lot of good things. We've talked about how we are partners with God and He's called us to be saints. We've talked about the power of the cross. We've talked about this partnership and jointship that we get to share together that there's this team. We've talked about giftedness. We've talked about some correction. We've talked about, if you get into like 1 Corinthians 8, 9, he talks about how when you come together, make sure you're doing it in a way that makes sense to the community. He said, we've talked about all of these things, but there's still one big thing that I want to encourage you to take account of. That if you want to avoid spiritual bankruptcy, if you want to avoid getting two years, three years, five years, two decades down the road, having experienced church and still feel empty, he said, I want you to take note of something. And the remedy is simple. It's one word. And normally when we get to this passage, we think wedding, right? I just came off of a streak in October where we did four weddings. I've done, I think, seven this year. I've got one more in December. And, and uh, this is always brought up, right? Can you read that passage, you know, that poem about love? And we think wedding, but Paul thinks life. Paul says, listen, this is way more than a ceremony. This is way more than just intimate love. This is life. And so as he's wrapping up verse, or chapter 12, look what he says. He says, yet I will show you the most excellent way. 
If I speak in tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am bankrupt. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. We look at this and go, wow, Paul really raises the bar quickly, doesn't he? This is coming off the heels of him encouraging them, work together, work for the good, work, work for the, for the, for the, to be that light, to be that force in our community. He says, work using your giftedness, your uniqueness. Don't run because you don't think you don't have anything that, that's at play. Don't, don't think that your gift is too small. No, he said, everything works together like a body. And just because you might be a hand doesn't mean you're not important. Just because you're, you might be eyes, you might be a thinker, doesn't mean you're important. Every place, everybody has its specific place and uniqueness and giftedness and it's needed coming on the heels of all of those kinds of things he says but there's a more excellent way to use these things and it's different than what typically comes to mind See, when we talk about using our giftedness, when we talk about using our uniqueness, when we talk about somehow coming together to play on a team, those sorts of things, what typically comes to mind is this, how will I benefit? How will I benefit? What will I get from this? How will this help me to excel faster? And we begin to automatically, it's just kind of human nature to automatically say, okay, if I do this, what's the outcome for me? What's the result for me? What's the benefit for me? How am I going to achieve what I need to achieve and get where I need to get faster? What, what, that, that's the way we typically, and he says, push the brake There's something that if you don't have it, it's good, but it's not going to be great. There's going to be a moment when you get down the road, and if, it's, if you're void of this, you're still going to feel empty. You're going to feel bankrupt. You're going to get to that moment where maybe you've done something good, and you get to that moment when it's over and it's past, and you go, well, that really wasn't what I thought it would be. I, I don't feel warm and fuzzy, or I don't feel good, or as good as I thought, or I, I thought that I would benefit in some different way. I thought that I, and we kind of go down this path, he says, in those moments where you left what's next, he says, listen, I want to encourage you to do these things, but I want to encourage you to do them in an excellent way. In fact, he says, the most excellent way, the best way. He says, let's maximize the lasting effects of your gifts. Let's really hone in on something that, that is going to be the driving force that's going to move what you do from being good to being great. It's that moment where grace is going to, going to become crazy grace. It's this moment where it doesn't matter if you benefit. It's that moment that's going to ripple beyond. He said, leave with love. See, negative things aren't the only things that ripple. We think of sin, we think of mistakes we make, and we know then we can track these things because they just constantly bring up pain, sorrow, hurt, those sorts of things. And we go, I can pinpoint right here is when the ripples began. And here I am, I'm way out here still dealing with something, but I can pinpoint back. See, sin and mistakes aren't the only thing. Sin is not static, but neither is love. Love is not static. It doesn't just, just 
plant in a spot and stay. It has ways of moving beyond the moment. It moves beyond the moment. It moves beyond current action. It ripples into places that you may never see. You may never fully know the outcomes of, but somewhere way out there, you're going to do something here in the moment that's seemingly just a momentary thing for today, but it's going to ripple out and it's going to have effect way out here in the future. And he says, listen, I want you to affect not just the moment I want you to affect today, but I want you to affect forever these places that go beyond these things. And so all throughout Paul's letter, he's he's encouraging them. He's rooting for them. He says, listen, my greatest want for you is this. I want you to not only experience God's goodness. I don't want you to just experience God's greatness and his great love and his great grace, but I also want you to be a conduit so that others experience these things. So he gets to the bottom line and he says, listen, if you want to make a a lasting impact, as I close this letter down, as we close this series down, he says, if you want to make a lasting impact, if you want to be a part of changing people's lives, you want your life to change, you want to be a part of this great transformation that makes our homes and our communities and our workplaces better, if you want to be crazy grace in a crazy world, if you want to do it to the max, you want to do it the most excellent way to the best you can so that it sticks around forever beyond the day, Beyond the moment, he says, you can't do it without love. He says, plain and simple. Guys, this is honestly the easiest text we've moved through. He says, this is plain and simple. I don't really need to give you any more instruction because if you can't do this, then everything else is going to fail. It's going to fall short. It's going to somehow leave you feeling empty. Even though you might be doing some good things, it's still going to feel like, you know what, it's still, there's just something that feels motionless about it. He says it's plain and simple. Love is the difference maker. It's what separates good things from from great things. He says love is the key. And what, what he's talking about here is he's talking about love in action. See, he's not, he's not referring to, you know, that passionate thing that we fall in and out of or that we make. No, he says, oh, that's a different kind of love. It's an agape love. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that, you know, where your, your commitment is unconditional to the, to the people or the person that you've given that love or extended that love to. He says it's a promise that's not meant to be taken lightly. He says it's a way of seeing others. And you begin to see them with this unconditional love. And you begin to see them as a creation of God made in the image of God. He says, that's the kind of love. And so he says, I want to explain this to you. I want to kind of open this up to you. And so he gives us some examples of good things. He gives us examples of four gifts. And he's reminding them that, listen, you will somehow use these things as conduit. But make sure they're running through the right conduit. He says these are good things. These are gifts that no one's going to argue it with. But he's going to pair it with something. He's going to give it the it factor. He says, listen, I want to pair it with something that moves it from good to great. That's the most excellent way. And he has a subtle way. See, in the midst of all this, he has a subtle way of reminding you that these gifts that no one's going to argue against that are good things, they're temporary things if they're void of love. They're just seemingly momentary events. But partnered and paired with the it factor, It ripples into something that affects the future. He says that using your gift is good, but the ability to relate well and love well is more superior. It's what takes it to the next level.
So here's what he says. Verse 1, he says this, And if you speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, you're a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. He says, take note of how you speak. You know, a lot of good can come from a a well-thought-out message. A lot of good can come from a spoken message. But he says, without love, you're just a resounding gong. Some say that this kind of carries with it this this Greek theater where they would take a, a large kind of clay vase, if you will, or vase if you're from up north. They would take this and, and they would somehow run the sound through this and it would reverber, reverberate out. And it served as kind of an ancient speaker. You know, we think like the old gong show, right? Boom. Kind of same concept, but he says, listen, you may be able to hear in the back row, but you're not saying anything. It might, it might sound good in the theater, but it's not saying anything. He said, you're a clanging cymbal. He says, it's just all you're doing is creating hollow meaningless reverberations. Yes, that's being heard, but it doesn't mean anything. You know the people. Well-meaning, well-spoken Christian people who speak about good things but with a tone and volume that doesn't separate them from the critic or the cynic. Or the people they're arguing against. And when you look side by side, you go, I'm not really sure what the difference is other than you're using different words. Because your attitude's no better. Your tone's no better. Your your volume is no better. He says, take note of how you use your speech. He says, don't use speech to win an argument. He says, use speech to, to heal hurting people. Don't don't use speech to tear down. No, use speech to build up. He says the goal is not to tear someone down to the place that they submit to Jesus. No, it's building them up and realizing what they're missing when they don't see Jesus. He says use your speech to, to not just spread hate, spread hope. I was talking with a metro officer last year got new year's coming up and if you haven't experienced downtown new year's in nashville uh don't um it's awful but i was asking him i said so how'd you get out of working downtown and he said man i graduated out of that that's for those young guys and i said i just figured it was all hands on deck it's got to get crazy down there right he said you know it's really not as bad as you think I said, what's the worst thing you dealt with last year on New Year's? And he looked at me and he said, your people. I thought to myself, my people. So I'm kind of categorizing my mind. Well, he knows I'm a Kentucky fan. I don't think there's a lot of them down here for that. Or, uh, you know, and I'm kind of going through. And he said, the biggest fights we have are a street evangelist. I said, whoa, whoa, that's not my people. Let's get that right. <laughs> I pointed to Chase. I was like, that's his people. <laughs> we were at the skate center. But I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, the biggest melee I had last year was a couple of street preachers down on 2nd Avenue that would not give it up, would not let. It was hate. It was just spewing and vomiting on everybody that came by. 
and you mix that with alcohol, it just is not good. He said that was the biggest problem we had last year. So I just want to say, Paul says, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. See, it has nothing to do with what they're saying. It's everything with how they're saying it. See, eloquent speech minus love, Paul says, it's just empty talk. He says, eloquent speech minus love. He says, you can have all the right words and have the wrong heart, and it's just not good. He said, you may be a gifted speaker, but then you go home and you're unable to relate or to love well your spouse. He said, what are you doing? You may be a gifted speaker, but you can't love your kids, you can't love family, you don't love your friends, you you don't like or love your classmates, your co-workers, Christians, non-Christians, human beings. He says, it's just impressive speech at that point. Nothing more, nothing less. He says, so watch how you talk. Then he goes on, he says, well, if you have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, but do not have love, he says, you're nothing. He says, let me point to a gift that I know you're going to think is important. We've talked about this several times throughout this, this series, is that in this culture, coming off this Greek and Roman kind of Greco culture, knowledge was power. Knowledge was key. See, they would have viewed this gift as top of the list, most important. This concept of of being spiritual meant that you had all of these impressive gifts, but this one would have really taken the the, the cake, being wise and knowledgeable. For them, an A-plus Christian would have been one who had mastered philosophy of religion, had mastered languages of Greek and Hebrew, had this excellent understanding of theology and knowledge. It was this amazing set of reasoning and thinking skills that would have given them their credentials. And Paul comes in and says, listen, you've got it all wrong. He says, what an A-plus Christian looks like is one who is patient, one who is kind to others. One who's not envious. One who never gives up on people. Ones who are willing to get messy. Ones who, in a word, love well. And he says, while knowledge is important, it's not most important. He says, it's not the telltale of a spiritual-filled life. He said, a spirit-filled life is known by love. So he says, impressive knowledge minus love. No, that's just empty arrogance. You think you have excelled. You think you have reached this place, this pinnacle. But he said, in reality, he says, just empty. You might know the the nuances, the philosophies, and the theologies. But he said, without love, it's just arrogance. It's you looking down your nose at what someone else doesn't know or doesn't understand or can't comprehend. He said, so be on guard. And then he partners that with another really personal one. He says, listen, if you have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, He says, you're bankrupt, you're nothing. See, a mountain was this universal symbol of something immovable. When we go to Gatlinburg or we go to to Denver, we see these impressive mountains. We got to see the Swiss apps. And you just go, wow, the thought of moving one of these is impossible. But this is hyperbole. He's saying, listen, it's this moving or it's the rooting up of a mountain that signifies in my life that I have removed something of great difficulty. I've removed something that most would deem impossible. This is considered an impressive achievement. He says, faith to do those sorts of things is impressive, but love is still greater. 
See, when we accomplish something difficult we, and, and, and we accomplish something impossible or we experience the miraculous, which we do in ministry because of our faith, that's inspiring and that's encouraging. But he says when you can't live in harmony with people, then it's really not that impressive. When you can't live in harmony with fellow believers and, again, family members, and we begin to stack up our greatest achievements of faith, but yet they all become empty ministry activities if they're not motivated, if they're not led by love. Impressive ministries filled with hurtful and, and, and unloving relationships. He says those are empty things. Here's what he says. He says, great faith minus love equals empty confidence. You have faith in something, you have confidence in something, but it's just empty because it's not loving. And you might be able to do some things and and see some great achievements take place right before your very eyes, and everyone's going to be impressed with that, but if it's not backed and seated and rooted in love. And then he kind of hammers this home with one more. Verse 3, he gives perhaps the most extreme example. Again, keep in mind that this was a city of wealth, known for its wealth, and, and wealth equals status. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor, I give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, he says, you've gained nothing. And Paul speaks of sacrifice. He says, let's talk about sacrifice of stuff and self. Some believe that what he's talking about in this moment was a surrendering of yourself to the flames or there was an ancient practice where one would take on, they would volunteer to to go and make themselves a slave in order to raise money for the poor, someone that was indebted. So a family member might be indebted beyond what they can and someone would step in and go, hey, everybody, look at me, I got this. I just want you to know that I'm going to be so sacrificial in this moment. I'm going to take on this debt. I'm going to take on this. I'm going to become an indentured servant, a slave for the next year. I'll be back, but for the next year. Can everybody just give me a round of applause? Not really. And it was this moment where he says, listen, I see what you're doing. And I know your tendency. He says, but if that again is void of love. See, you can have complete and total self-abandonment but it's only as good as the motivation behind it. So he says, you know, total sacrifice minus love is just empty deeds. It's just you doing stuff. Yeah, and it might be good, but it's not great. And it might ripple a moment, but void of love, it's never going to ripple as far as it could. And somewhere down the road, you're still going to feel that bankruptcy. You're going to feel that, wow, that wasn't what I, man, I thought it was going to be better than that. And I thought that, man, I just thought I'd be, be filled with something different. I mean, I loved the applause I got, and I loved winning that argument, and I loved having all this knowledge where I could be the smartest man in the room. I, I loved those things, but I still feel empty. And Paul says, listen, what you say, what you know, what you believe, and what you do, doesn't matter if it's not powered with love. He says it's empty. It's bankrupt. So here we sit. As we close this series, here we sit in a crazy world, a world that is without a doubt in need of Jesus. 
without a doubt, in need of his crazy grace, his message of hope, his offer of forgiveness, his invitation to belong. In a world that is filled with shame and isolation, he says, listen, I've got the remedy for this. It's love. And I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to bankrupt. I want to protect my credit score here. And it's not because I'm trying to earn some kind of credit. It's because I want to credit that forward. I want to be able to, to be a conduit for God to use me and what I say and what I think and what I believe and what I do. I want him to use those things in a way that will extend beyond my moment, this seemingly momentary moment that I think only affects today. So here we sit with an opportunity to do those things, to do something beyond ourselves, to leave this lasting impact and this legacy, to bring about real transformation. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be left bankrupt. So what will we do? I don't know about you, but I'm going to seek to be crazy grace. And I'm going to love. 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 And the beauty of what Paul writes, see, we don't spend as much time on those first three verses. We really pick up in verse 4. Paul says, in light of what I've just said about it being a clanging noise and being nothing and being bankrupt, he says, I don't want to leave any room for interpretation. Let me tell you exactly what love looks like. And this is the familiar part that we all know, right? He says, I don't want to leave any room for speculation. He says, so love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. Love always protects, love always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then if you get to verse 13, he says, these three things will remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. I'm going to do everything in my power to do everything that I do with love. Why? Because I want to be like Jesus. Plain and simple. It has nothing to do with growing a church. It has nothing to do with feeding people, it has nothing to do with being a good husband. See, those things are all side effects. Those things are results of me trying to be like Jesus. Someone this morning even gave me, you know, the old uh, what would Jesus do bracelets. Somebody handed me this one. I think they saw my notes. But uh, this one says H-W-L-F. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And they said, he would love first. And so in my quest to be like Jesus, I want to take on these qualities. I had an old Sunday school teacher that uh, would have us read this, and she would have us insert Jesus every time we saw the word love. And we can do this because Jesus is love. And when I've read it this way, it changed the way I read it forever. And it changes the way I'm trying to line my life up in the way that I speak and the way that I think, and the way that I believe, and what I do. Because listen to this. 
Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs, thank God. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. Jesus always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And when I read it that way, I go, wow. Do I always seek to protect? Do I always seek to trust and hope and persevere? Am I always not self-seeking? Do, do I always extend patience and kindness and do I find myself wanting what other people have? Do I boast in the wrong things? And when I read it that way, I walk away and go, I want to be more like Jesus. And I want to lead a church that's living like Jesus. In a world filled with policy, I choose people. You know, from time to time, we as a lead team, we have people that ask us, what's your policy on that? What's your policy on certain issues? And we say, love. We will always, always, always choose people over policy. Why? Because it's what Jesus would do. That's what I want to do. And that's the style of church that we're in the creating processes of doing. And God is going to work through us to bring crazy grace to this crazy world. You guys stand with me. I'm going to pray us out. And I hope that you will join us in this. I hope that if you don't feel loved, that you'll lean in. And you'll listen to Jesus in the midst of a crazy world that undoubtedly you live in. Just lean in and know that there is a grace and a love that's crazier than even the world that you live in. That's even bigger. It's the most excellent. And if you don't know Jesus, then ask. Ask somebody around you, ask somebody back at Respond. But we want to connect you with this powerful thing that Paul leads off with in chapter 1 of saying, listen, for those that don't know, it's foolishness. But for those of us who have leaned in and come to understand who and what Jesus really is, it's this representation of all-out, maximized, crazy grace. It is power. It's power to navigate this crazy life. I think once you lean in, you'll like him. You'll love him. And knowing that he loves you will change the way you navigate this crazy world. Father, as we wrap this up, I pray that it's only the beginning of us beginning to live these things out in a way that matters. God, I know a lot of Christian people who have a lot of things to say and they believe a lot of things and they think a certain way about a lot of things and even do a lot of good things. God, I don't want it to end there. I want it to be all just covered, saturated, dripping with love. So, Father, as we enter into this season of holiday, as we enter into this season of Thanksgiving and Christmas, God, will you help us to align ourselves maybe differently than we've ever done before? And then when we, when we, when we see people, when we talk to people, when we do things for people, 
God, whether it's as a church or whether it's as an individual or a family, God, will you help us to love more, love better, love well. Father, I pray that in those moments that it won't just serve a temporary need, it won't just be saying something encouraging that brings about temporary peace, but God, it will ripple beyond. That God, even in this moment when, when we say to ourselves, you know, does this even matter? Will this even, will this, is this even going to affect anything? Can we just put that, just, just trust you in this. Trust that you take love and you multiply it. That you take love and, God, you, 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 you tuck it into places and dark corners that we don't have the ability to do. And, and, Father, I pray that you would use that again in order to bring light to a dark world. God, thank you for being a little bit crazy. Thank you for loving us in crazy ways and doing crazy things, most of all for sending Jesus, which most thought was crazy. But, God, I'm glad that in those moments and in that act that I find redemption, that I find salvation, I find friendship, I find belonging, and I find purpose. So, Father, help me to live into those purposes. We pray this through your son's name. Amen.